Crime Chatters. I'm Nat. And I'm Kat. And welcome to the Crime Chat. I am your forensic femme fatale and Natalie is your true crime addict connoisseur. We're just two normal girls who obsess about dark crimes, evil minds, and occasionally the unknown. And the occasional crime and cosmetics. Yes. Here's your disclaimer, chatters. The following crime chat contains adult content and descriptions of, uh-huh, violent, yeah, violent and interesting scenarios today, so your listener discretion is advised. You have been warned, and before we get into today's crime chat, Kat, what have you done? Uh, well. Where are you? So this is Scottsdale, Arizona, which is um, going to be where our crime and cosmetics segment takes place today. It's beautiful out there. Oh my God. Yeah, this is, uh, well, Scottsdale. So Scottsdale is on the outskirts of Phoenix. Okay. The Phoenix area is going to be my future home at some point in time. <laughs> So this is going to be like my backyard. Isn't that amazing? Beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. That sunset is amazing. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Other than, you know, my hopes and dreams and my background. (laughs) So I watched a documentary slash drama. It was really strange. It's called Reality on HBO Max. And it's based on Reality Winner, the contract intelligence analyst who leaked some information and was found and got arrested. But it was really cool because even though it was like dramatized, the entire movie was based on the FBI's recording from her interview. So it was documentary-ish, mm-hmm. but it, it obviously it was acted out and dramatized and everything. So it's super interesting, and I would kind of want to do a crime chat on it. Where is this? That story. Is this HBO? Yeah, it's on HBO Max, okay. and it's out of the NSA, I believe, the NSA building at Fort Gordon in Augusta, Georgia. Okay, I got to check that out. Okay. Yeah. It was like, oh, wow. I mean, because we got, you know, we've talked a little bit of spy stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then there's a new season. It only has four episodes of Catching Killers on Netflix. And there's a couple in there, too, that I was like, oh, we should do that story. We should do that story. They covered the DC sniper. Right. They covered the Atlanta Olympics bombing, the bomber, Eric Rudolph. Mm-hmm. Then there was another one who was like the train killer and in like Texas. A lot of the murders were done in Texas, but he also had like family and kind of out skirts area and i can't remember his name that sounds like a future crime chat yes it was like i was like man i don't know i don't know if i remember this story (laughs) it was really neat though and then oh my gosh have you seen the florida man on netflix i'm surrounded around i the the florida man surrounds me okay i I, they're everywhere too many too many florida men (laughs) there's a it's a series it's about eight episodes it's a right. limited series. It's on Netflix. And it came out a couple months ago. And I remember the preview for it coming up like on one of those, you know, coming soon type of uh-huh. things. Uh-huh. And I was like, Florida Man, what is this about? Watch the trailer. And I was like, seems pretty cool. Pretty interesting. It has mob ties. <laughs> it's out of Philadelphia. There's a Chicago tie. Okay. And then it, it takes place in Coronado Beach on the East Coast. I've never been there, but all roads lead to Florida. <laughs> Them. <laughs> you gotta watch it though because there's so many like true things you know what i mean like so so many like cultural references to okay. florida and mm. i mean this guy it's he's the florida man it's crazy <laughs> so it's, it's like a, a comedy slash crime okay okay and that's on hbo too i have to get hbo no that's on netflix 
Oh, okay. I have Netflix. Okay. Yeah. So search Florida Man. Right. I'm going to search. Okay. <laughs> that, that's right up my alley. I mean, so who's the actor? Do you know who the actor is? You know, he looks familiar. I couldn't, I can't think of his name. There's a couple of familiar faces in there, but ugh, it's escaping me. That's one of the reasons why I love Dexter so much is because it was in Miami and yeah. it was like, I understood what it's like to go to work and just sweat, like just going to your <laughs> car in the morning, like at 8, 39 o'clock and being drenched before you turn the AC on. Like it's yeah. just so humid. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's pretty much sums up. Nothing. Nothing else too too interesting. No grandbaby just yet, but we're it we're happening. It's gonna happen. It's happening. <laughs> the cat's the countdown is happening. So, how many more days does she have? Like, where is she? So she's point? got she's got about a month left. Okay. She's already starting to show signs. So it could be anything okay. now, and I'll, oh my I'll find myself in California at some point soon. They have names? Scarlet Rose. Oh. They know they're having a girl. Yes. Scarlet Rose. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Oh, my God. And she's already spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> yep. What about you? What's going on? So I have been constantly keeping an eye out for the any updates on Corey Richens. Yes. And there is, they have not come to any type of conclusion whether she's innocent or if she's, she's going to be convicted. or mm-hmm. So that's still in, in the works. But there is an update as of two hours ago. The sister um, that gave that really compelling speech during the court, mm-hmm. like that, that – a witness statement, that mm-hmm. victim statement. Yeah. She is suing Corey for $13 million. Oh, wow. Is she the one that got into the fight with Corey? Yeah. Uh Yeah. And because I think what people are thinking right now is that the defense attorney actually feels confident that they're not going to be able to really, without a reasonable doubt, charge her for this crime. She hasn't been, she's been arrested, but not indicted. Is that right? Right. And that's what they kept pushing back was the indictment. Right. For the grand jury. Okay. To see if there's enough preponderance of evidence to be able to go to court. Yes. And she's not, uh, she's not walking free. So she's in jail. There is no bail. He would not set a bail for her. So she's okay. sitting in a jail cell and she, you know, I don't know. I, I think she she's guilty. Yeah. I mean, Aquatifana. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. And that's a crazy case. So we'll look forward to kind of see where that goes. Now, the next update is it's August. Is that when the indictment scheduled for? Is, I thought that's what I saw was Oh, August. I don't know. I'm not sure. You could be right. I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. You're probably right. I didn't even think of it. So, Kat. I know today is a crime in cosmetics. <laughs> yes, it is. And we love our crime yes. in cosmetics. This is going to be a doozy. And, and like always, Kat did not tell me what it's about. She didn't tell me anything. <laughs> she has this beautiful sunset behind her. I do. I know there's murder. Yes. I know there's makeup. Yes. But I have no idea. I'm Natalie is clueless. So, <laughs> Well, and you know Arizona. You know Arizona. Mm-hmm. But I don't know where the cosmetics fits in because I, I know crimes in Arizona but I don't know like the connection so yes this is going to be interesting well and just by the title you know there's going to be a torso <laughs> <laughs> so that would also indicate murder <laughs> So. so you you did ask me to do an intro on the extradition process or yes because it's there's a tie-in for extradition as well. Okay. 
So I thought if you go ahead and explain that, then it'll kind of all like wrap in towards the end. Okay. Okay. Well, an extradition agreement is a formal treaty or agreement between two or more countries that establish the legal framework and procedures for the extradition of individuals who are accused or convicted of crimes in one country but are present in another country. Mm-hmm. It provides a legal mechanism for one country to request the transfer of a suspect or convicted individual from another country's jurisdiction in order to face trial, mm-hmm. serve a sentence, or otherwise, you know, they would be escaping some type of legal process. Mm-hmm. Extradition agreements typically outline the obligations and procedures that each country must follow when handling a request. They defined the types of offenses for which an extradition can be requested, the evidence required to support the request, the process for submitting a request under those conditions can be granted or can be refused. The country doesn't have to Mm -hmm. send the person over. Yep. Yep. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yep. These agreements are designed to facilitate cooperation between countries in the pursuit of justice and the prevention of criminal activities Mm -hmm. to ensure that individuals who have committed crimes cannot evade justice by seeking refuge in another country and that they can be returned to the country where the alleged offense was committed to face legal proceedings. Mm-hmm. Now, I have just like three high-profile cases that we had to start the process for an extradition, the okay. extradition process, okay? Okay. And I, there was a bunch, like, when I said, like, I, I, I Googled, like, the most popular or most historical extraditions in the world, mm-hmm. and they were all loads i mean i know there are there are a lot of people that like it's you know what it's not it's not the most original idea to flee the country after committing a crime Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people do it. Mm-hmm. Now, oh, by the way, Kat, so I will d- be telling you the person, the criminal, what they did, and then I will be listing some movies for references. Oh, okay. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So the first one, Julian Assange, the founder of Wikilinks, Julian mm, Assange, yes. faced extradition from the United Kingdom to the United States. He was wanted by the United States for charges related to leaking classified information. Yes. After a long legal battle, the UK court approved his extradition in 2021, but the decision was appealed. Now, there are three movies that I found that seem to be really, really interesting. Two of them are movies. One of them is a documentary. So the first one that I found is called The Fifth Estate. Have you ever heard of that? Nope. Mm-mm. The Fifth Estate is a 2013 thriller about the news-leaking website WikiLeaks. The film stars Benedict Cumberbatch, which yes. I think I know who that is, and he's freaking hot. Yes, he's been in tons of movies. And most notably, he was Doctor Strange. Yes. On the Marvel series. Oh yeah. my God, he is a hottie. Okay. So this is about the editor-in-chief and the founder of WikiLeaks, Julian Strange. The next one is a documentary called Risk, which is in 2016, about his life. Just the whole story okay. about his life. The next movie sounds really juicy, and that's called Collateral Murder. Have you ever heard of that? Mm, maybe. 
<laughs> Maybe. Okay. I got. I've never seen it. It's a documentary of classified military footage released by WikiLinks showing an attack by the United States military mm. in the Iraq suburb of the new Baghdad. Mm-hmm. This callous attack left twelve dead, including two children mm. were seriously injured. Mm-hmm. So I gotta check that out. All right. The next one. Edward Snowden. Oh. <gasps> you ever heard of him? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I I am kind of torn between him. I don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. I I, I honestly don't like what he did. Mm-hmm. It really bothers me. Mm-hmm. You know, like there are things that what we were doing that bothers me. But when you betray, then you you've lost all credibility. Yeah. Like the minute you betray, the minute you do something like that, it's just like you you had a good argument. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Then you went and did that, and now you just. I don't know. Yeah. So he was the uh, former NSA contractor. Mm-hmm. He faced extradition from Hong Kong to the United States. He leaked classified documents revealing extensive global surveillance programs. However, he managed to evade extradition and was granted asylum in Russia. Of course. Where he currently resides. Russia is like, yes. We will let you come here. Tell us everything you know. So I'm sure you've seen the movie Snowden in 2016. Actually, I haven't seen it. But I know, yeah, I know of it. It was pretty good. The actor's really good. Like, this was also directed by Oliver Stone. Mm -hmm. And it was based on the books, The Snowden Files. Mm. The actor's name was Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. You know who that is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The movie's about a central intelligence agency, CIA, Mm -hmm. subcontractor, and whistleblower who was Mm -hmm. Edward, Mm -hmm. who copied and leaked highly classified information from the National Security Agency in 2013. Mm. Sorry. No. Yeah. No. The next one, Augusto Pinochet. I went on Google and did the translator and it's Pinochet. (laughs) Pinochet. He is the former military dictator of Chile. Mm -hmm. He faced extradition from the United Kingdom to Spain. He was accused of human rights abuses and crimes committed during his rule. Mm -hmm. Pinochet was arrested in 1998 but was later released due to health concerns without facing trial oh wow i know it's fucked up i found a film here one and it's called no no and it's from 2012 the film captures the advertising tactics in the political campaigns i guess for his run in in 1988 Mm -hmm. when the chilean citizens decided whether or not the dictator augusto should stay in power for another eight years at the 85th Academy Awards, the film was nominated for the Best Foreign Language oh. Film Oscar. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Never heard of it. Never saw it. But mm. Mm. no, that's a new one. Next one, Kim.com. Have you ever heard of this one? No. Okay. So <laughs> the founder of the file sharing website, Mega Upload, okay. faced extradition from New Zealand to the United States. He was wanted on charges for copyright infringement, Mm. money laundering, and racketeering. However, the New Zealand court ruled against his extradition in 2017, citing insufficient evidence. Mm. Like, uh. So there is a movie called Kim.com, Caught in the Web. 2017, he was also known as the most wanted man online. Really? This is about his battles with the United States government and the entertainment industry over issues of ownership and privacy. You know, I'm really surprised I haven't heard that. Yeah, and that I had to stop there. I mean, I could have went on and on and on. There are so <laughs> many cases. It's not – I mean, th- these are – 
the first one, the first two are well known, but the last two I, I, I wasn't, I'm not too familiar with. Okay. So I hope this sets you up for your case. Yeah. It kind of talks about the different types of processes and uh-huh. you'll see how the extradition process kind of comes into play and it's kind of in a twist towards the end. Okay. So. All right. Are you ready for the crime cosmetics? Crime and cosmetics. Cheers. I got my, my invisible water. <laughs> Just shenanigans. They're normal shenanigans. Yeah. Okay, here we go. On January 27th, 2000, then 47-year-old beautician Valerie Pape was seen dumping a new torso of her 60-year-old husband, Ira Pomerantz, into a dumpster. Initially, she denied having anything to do with the murder. She was confronted then with an eyewitness account who saw her. Valerie said she found her husband dead in their home, but she didn't kill him. You imagine walking in on somebody doing that? (laughs) I just threw that little bait out there for you. Okay. All right. So what the fuck happened? And why is there a torso in a dumpster? (laughs) Well, this crime and cosmetics crime chat covers a case of Valerie Pape, the twists and turns and oh, that would follow. But we got to start from the beginning. Okay. Valerie Pape, born in 1952, she was raised in a middle to upper class area of France, and she was the daughter of a French doctor. She attended the best Catholic schools, had a really, really good upbringing, really good life. Her first husband was a CPA, and life was very comfortable for them. They lived just outside of Paris, had two homes, and would often visit Italy, go on vacation. Just be like, you know, living the, you know, upper class European lifestyle, I suppose. Although life seemed very, very happy for Valerie, she was missing something, a family. She didn't have any children. She was unable to have children herself, so they adopted a little girl. However, it wouldn't be long before this now fairy tale family would kind of fall apart. Valerie filed for divorce, but not only did she lose her lifestyle, she lost custody of her daughter. Oh my God. And I looked and I could not find anything about that. Like typically, I mean, if you fight for it, right, with mothers, you fight for it, you get the custody, right? Unless there was some sort of other agreement that took place, it just seemed seemed weird. I couldn't find anything about that. Yeah. Red flag. Red flag. Yeah. But in an attempt to start her life over, in 1993, Valerie moved to the United States. She had some friends in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona, (laughs) and decided to move there. She loved the beauty industry and would actually try her hand at attending beauty school. It's called the Allure Career College of Beauty in Scottsdale. However, she was really struggling to make ends meet. As part of her college courses, she would volunteer to cut and style hair at like this retirement community. And one of her customers was an elderly man named Howard Pomerantz. Howard then introduced Valerie to his son, Ira. Even though they had a 13 year age difference, they actually like hit it off. On their first date, Ira took Valerie to Las Vegas. Maybe more men like Howard around. (laughs) Ira. (laughs) Ira, Ira, sorry. (laughs) Valerie was just absolutely swooned by Ira's lavish lifestyle. And Ira, you know, complimentary, was allured by her image because she always presented herself really well and her beautiful French accent. Now, the 54-year-old Ira was sometimes described as a loud and brash New Yorker. He was originally from Monticello and then Brooklyn. 
and he was also known as a playboy and had some questionable associates at times. Now a two-time divorcee, he was a loving father to two girls, one from each marriage. He loved to play golf. He was a very social person. He was very spontaneous, and he was a pilot who had his own plane. And often he would just like go fly to New York City, fly to Las Vegas, just to kind of do what he wanted. He was a very spontaneous person. He was a successful businessman. Ira built a very successful business in New York City, importing garments from overseas and then selling the fabrics to U.S. manufacturers. This is apparently a really big business. It's huge. And, you know, your description of him, I know, like I have multiple people in my life that are just like him. Yeah. And, yeah, the downtown Canal Street, mm-hmm. it's just the fabric industry, the, the designers and the garment sector, they call it. It's... Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Well, Valerie was then described as a sweet and kind, sensitive woman who dressed very meticulously. She oh. was petite, blonde, five foot two, 110 pounds soaking wet, and had an enamoring French accent. People were really attracted to her just in her personality overall. And even though she kind of struggled with money, she was absolutely obsessed with fashion, would never leave home without her makeup and hair being done to like perfection. She was, and she's beautiful. She was absolutely beautiful. Now, after dating for about two years, Ira bought Valerie a 4,000 plus square foot home with a pool in a very posh upper end neighborhood called McCormick Ranch in Scottsdale. Shortly after moving in, the couple married November 18th, 1995 at their home. There was some pictures out there. It was like a beautiful like wedding and reception out there. Mm. Surrounded by family and friends. And on a videotape on their wedding day, a friend asked Ira if he had any last words before saying, I do. Ira eerily said, quote, so long, everyone. Nice knowing you, end quote. Of course, at this time, he was meaning he was moving on to bigger and better things by getting married to Valerie, but it was very eerie. That's like (laughs) our last episode where I told you about the way my ex said, you know, if he has a splinter, it would be like, (laughs) put him out of his misery. Like, yeah, like, I guess we joke around like that. I know. But it wouldn't take long for this couple to actually be well-liked socialites in the Scottsdale area. Valerie was known to go jogging in the neighborhood and hiking along nearby mountains here. Ira opened two bars in Chandler, which is another outside city of Phoenix area. Uh With Ira's help financially, Valerie then opened the Valerie Pape Beauty Gallery. It's a hair salon, a boutique, and an art gallery. She would often host like these big parties Uh at the gallery, showcase work of local artists to include elected officials Uh like a state senator. They would have bands come and perform in the atrium. But they were always busy. Anytime anybody walked in there, it was always busy. It was very successful. And Valerie became well-loved in the community. Ira was friendly, but apparently he did have a drinking problem and maybe a little bit of a temper. In 1998, he was arrested for DUI. He also became known as a failing businessman. So once he left New York, he left the fabric industry and then went moved to Arizona Opened up a couple bars. It did well. Yeah. But he was allegedly notorious for not paying employees, overcharging customers, watering down some of the alcohol that he, that was sold at his bars, yeah. and then not obeying local liquor laws. And eventually, he was actually fined by the Liquor Control Board for serving alcohol not just after hours, but also to minors. Oh, 
Not cool. No, no, no. Yeah. By 1999, kind of with Ira's failing business, the bills were kind of starting to stack high. Ira owed his associates money and lost one of his two bars. The second one would soon follow, and Ira subsequently filed for bankruptcy. Valerie, even though her business was very successful, kind of didn't help the financial situation because she grew accustomed to this posh lifestyle. She liked expensive things. She's got expensive taste. Uh She drove a Jaguar. Uh Well, Ira himself had a Jaguar, a couple of other like fancy cars, and Valerie dressed in the finest clothing, expensive, expensive taste. So far, I like her. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we'll see. (laughs) This naturally would cause some tension with the couple regarding their deteriorating financial situation. Ira told his friends that he just couldn't keep up with Valerie's spending, and she was bleeding him dry. He actually said, too, he wanted to divorce. Things weren't going well. The arguments would increase. So bad to a point where Valerie actually took self-defense lessons and learned how to shoot a gun. And apparently, Ira was an avid gun collector as well. And Valerie said that she was afraid that Ira would use a gun on her. (sighs) To make situations worse... Mm-hmm. Valerie had a close male friend that she knew since childhood in France. His name is Michelle. It's Michelle, but it's Michael. like Michael, I guess. But yeah, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> but it is pronounced Michelle. Michelle Savage. He followed her from France to the United States. Valerie asked him to come to help with her business. He walked her down the aisle when Valerie and Ira got married. Uh. And according to friends, Ira worked at night. Valerie worked during the day, and anytime Valerie would have these social events at her gallery, Michelle was there to accompany her. Right. She wanted to go out shopping, Michelle went. She wanted to go eat at a fancy restaurant, Michelle went. Michelle. Miguel. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) But he would accompany her all the time, and they spent so much time together that people started to notice. People thought Valerie and Mikkel were in a relationship. And eventually, once the relationship between Ira and Valerie started to sour, Ira would also tell his friends he thought Valerie and Michelle were having an affair. Now, Michelle was also living at the home with Valerie and Ira. But it was so big that he, like, had his own space. Right. But he lived there. He worked with Valerie. Huh. Yeah. By September of 1999, Valerie Michelle actually moved out of the home and in with one of her friends because of the tension kind of in the house. While staying there, her friend, her friend's name is Merle Bianchi, she was having some problems with her own, like with her husband, and she eventually reported her husband missing, Merle, Valerie's friend. (laughs) Merle's name sounds more masculine than the guy's name. I know. He is Michelle. She is Merle. Merle. (laughs) I know. And and I don't understand, like, if he was was even suspect to that, like, as far as thinking that his wife was having an affair with the person, with this live-in assistant, why wouldn't Mm -hmm. you kick him out? They might have had arguments about it. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah. I think just with the whole financial situation, Ira was just getting, like, really frustrated. And I'll kind of get to some of his, like, one of his best friend's accounts on the whole situation here in, in a minute. Okay. Once Merle reported her husband missing, Valerie and Michelle did move back into the house with Ira. A week after they moved in, Merle's husband, Ronald, his body was found 48 miles outside of Phoenix in a town called Payson. 
two children actually stumbled on the body while they were walking in the woods. It was Ronald Bianchi, 53. He was shot multiple times. He was a former newspaper writer and a very high-profile businessman in the area, which is makes sense. Like, if Valerie and I were these big socialites, they would have other socialite friends, right? Right. Now, I'm going to take a real quick bunny trail, squirrel moment, and talk about the Bianchi case really quick because it's it, it's interesting there may be a tie. Ooh. I'm going to mention it. Okay. So the Bianchi case received national attention in 2000 after the Arizona Republic newspaper published a heavily criticized article implying that Ronald Bianchi was murdered because he knew something about an alleged affair between U.S. Arizona U.S. Senator John McCain and singer Connie Stevens. Apparently, no evidence was ever surfaced about this, but it might have been because Ronald was dead. (laughs) But both McCain and Stevens insisted their relationship was strictly platonic. A police official told the Arizona Republic newspaper at least twice McCain and Stevens were interviewed regarding the murder. But then that person, their police official recanted the statement. So maybe they somebody found out that the police talked to the newspaper and he was like, oh, no, 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 never mind. Wow. Oh, my God. Okay. Now, McCain was eventually interviewed, but police said that he had nothing to do with Ronald Bianchi's murder. And this article apparently was removed, uh, like retracted from the Arizona Republic newspaper. But Bianchi's killer has never been found. But that's another crime chat. That's that's just a little nugget, like a little interesting nugget (laughs) to include in this whole thing, right? So I just found a lot of articles that were relating the Valerie Pape and Ira Pomerantz right. to this Bianchi case. It kind of seemed like I'd throw in a little a little teaser for maybe a future crime chat. <laughs> well, I, yeah, Don McCain was huge in Arizona. I mean – Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. They love him. They did. Yep. Now, family and friends knew Ira and Valerie's relationship was very volatile. Police had been to the McCormick Ranch home more than once, and friends and co-workers said that they had seen bruises on Valerie. Valerie said Ira was an abusive alcoholic, and in late 1999, Valerie sought a court order of protection based on a physical allegation. Valerie claimed that Ira threw knives at her during an argument over bills. Ira confirmed they had an argument, but denied he ever got physical, including throwing knives at Valerie. A week later, she withdrew the court order, saying that she and Ira were working things out but it wouldn't be long before a man's torso was found in a dumpster so about five o'clock in the morning on january 27 2000 a delivery man witnessed a petite blonde woman getting out of a jaguar and throwing a heavy bag into a trash bin behind a grocery store in mesa arizona again mesa is like a little area outside of phoenix Not feeling right about the situation that he witnessed, the delivery man made a note of the car, license plate, physical description, and he had to stay on his delivery schedule, so he did his job, he did his route. Once he was done, he and his co-delivery person went back to the dumpster to see what it was that this mysterious woman put in the trash. They found what looked like to be a garbage bag inside of the dumpster, which obviously you're going to find garbage bags Mm -hmm. inside, right? This one looked a little weird. They wanted to open it up and see what was inside, but didn't want to open it up and see what was inside. So instead, he took an X-Acto knife that he had as far as like a delivery person would have an X-Acto knife, right, to cut open boxes and everything. Right. He took it out, stuck it in the bag, pulled it out, and there was blood on it. She must have looked super suspicious if somebody was willing, if somebody remembered the license plate to take all that information down and then go back mm-hmm. to just see... She must have looked really 
suspicious. Yeah. Well, apparently it bothered this delivery driver like all day. Yeah. Like I have to do my job, but like I I need to get back there and find out what the hell did she dump? It was just weird. Crazy. He decided to try contact police. He flagged down a nearby officer and provided the account of what he saw, what happened with a knife, yeah. when he poked the bag, everything. Mm. When the officer arrived at the dumpster, the officer did open the bag and found a torso. No arms, no legs, no head, just a male torso. Boy. The witness gave police all the information that he had, wrote it down, you know, had wrote down as far as the vehicle description, license plate, very good description of the female, who he noted as being fashionably dressed, wearing a jumpsuit and high heels. Like, he was very descriptive. <laughs> Of this woman. It was five o'clock in the morning. So Valerie's thinking oh, that- someone's going to be around. Well, we don't know that it's Valerie at this time. They Police don't know that it, it, okay. if it's Valerie. They don't know who she is. They just know it was a petite blonde woman driving a Jaguar, dumping yeah. a body. That's but all they know I am point. impressed because you did give her a really good description of her earlier about her size and her weight. Mm-hmm. She has to be strong or really, really pissed off. Because, you know, like when you see red, you can do something like serious, like you can lift a car, like, you know, like you ever see those those videos where moms protect their kids and they can do crazy things. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, she, I don't know. What, 5'2", 110 pounds you said before? Soaking wet, 110 pounds. She was described anywhere between 100 to 110 pounds. Yeah. Did it all in heels. (laughs) In a jumpsuit, in (laughs) heels. Very fashionable. So the day before, so that's put what police find on the 27th. On the morning of January 26th, Ira's good friend, Louis Malazzo, became concerned because he hadn't spoken to Ira in almost a week. They normally spoke multiple times throughout the week, you know, if not every day, every other day. Louis decided he would contact Valerie and say, where's Ira? Like, hey, have you seen Ira? Mm -hmm. She said, I don't know. And Louis was like, Well, when's the last time that you saw him? She said, late Sunday, and this would have been January 23rd was the last time she saw him. So Valerie then told Lewis, I don't know where he is. He didn't come home. He probably went to Vegas or something. Now, again, tensions are high at the home, right? So, you know, maybe he just went to Vegas to kind of go take a break. Valerie and Michelle moved back in the house. Maybe he's like, I'm not coming home. Fuck this. I'm leaving. I'm going to Vegas, which apparently he did all the time. Lewis, however, was concerned enough that he convinced Valerie to file a missing persons report. So, who is Lewis Malazzo? Well, Lewis and Ira were in the same garment industry in New York. And after initially meeting as, like, business associates, the two became very, very close. And so close that when Lewis retired in 92 to move to Scottsdale, he's like, hey, Ira, come with me. And so Ira did. He left New York. I could see him. I could see both of them, like, on a golf course with a cigar. Like, I I can envision who they are. Yes. (laughs) You're doing really well with the descriptions. Like, I'm loving it right now. Thank you. I got a a mental picture. (laughs) Yay. So January 26th, right? That day, Lewis met Valerie at the police department to file a missing persons report. Lewis said Valerie was in and out five minutes. Not concerned at all. I think he just went to Vegas, but we haven't seen, you know, heard from him in almost a week. After all, Ira was a free spirit. He enjoyed coming and going as he pleased. He was very spontaneous. However, both Lewis and Ira's two daughters from the two previous marriages, they were not at ease about the situation at all. None of them had heard from Ira in almost a week. Lewis knew Ira had talked to a divorce attorney, and Ira told Lewis that he thought he made a mistake with Valerie. 
but he wanted to make the marriage end peacefully. And it wasn't just what Ira told to Lewis about the divorce and the situation. It was when. Ira told Lewis the day before he went missing. It didn't necessarily mean that Ira didn't go to Vegas to spend time alone, but it also didn't mean that things didn't go as peacefully as, as Ira hoped. So... The following day, January 27th, when the unidentified torso was found, investigators went on the only lead that they had, the license plate in the description, right? Uh And it came back to, da-da-da, Valerie Pate. (laughs) In conducting a background investigation, they found Valerie filed the missing police report the previous day on Ira. Thus, in 24 hours before, there was a missing persons report. The next day, Valerie's seen dumping, right? But that didn't necessarily mean the torso was this missing person. Mm -hmm. There was no fingerprints, no facial features on the body. They could not physically connect the missing person to that being of Ira. So they would have to wait for an autopsy and DNA test to be sure. However, since she had allegedly been seen dumping a body, police had more than enough probable cause to go ahead and question her. By the next day, around 5 p.m., police showed up at Valerie's salon to bring her in for questioning. And initially, Valerie denied being the one seen dumping the torso. Police never believed her from the beginning. (laughs) They're like, she was full of shit the whole time. When investigators told Valerie, dude, like, you stupid bitch, somebody saw you. Somebody wrote down your license plate and saw you. But wee wee, I am just too tiny and too small and I got heels on. (laughs) (laughs) Valerie's, her story changed when she was confronted with this eyewitness account. She said, okay, here's what happened. I came home and I found Ira on the morning of January 24th in a pool of blood on the kitchen floor. It's huge. (laughs) Why not contact police, Valerie? They asked her. Apparently, she said, I was so afraid that I would be accused and subsequently try to protect myself. And that fear led her to tell Ira's friend, Louis, that Ira likely had gone to Vegas. So, all right. All right, Valerie, why did you have a torso? He was dismembered. And apparently, this is when she shut down and asked for a lawyer. All questions ceased. Mm. Valerie still denied responsibility for the murder. However, with overwhelming circumstantial evidence, police had enough to charge Valerie with first-degree murder. At this point, police did not have yet confirmation of the unknown torso. It, it, It took a few days, like it took several days. After taking DNA samples from Ira's daughters, it was a match. So they were able to confirm that the torso, DNA taken from the torso, matched both of the two daughters. Yeah. The autopsy also revealed that the body had been killed earlier and was frozen. Ira's head was severed at the neck, but the medical examiner was able to discover traces of a gunshot wound just below the cut, like in the back. They theorized the bullet had gone into his head based on the trajectory of the wound, so basically down in an upward motion. Maybe somebody who was shooting as a smaller stature? (laughs) Or kneeling down? Well, no, she has heels on, though. So, (laughs) but wait, so... Was she trying to convince police that it could have been like a, a New York hit job or something? Because he was. It, we'll get. Oh, okay, 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 okay. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Yep, yep. I'm yep. like white knuckle at the steering wheel right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so where was I, the rest of Ira's body? Seriously. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> police felt that Valerie, they theorized, they, they never could prove this, but Valerie was driving in the greater Phoenix area, which is absolutely freaking huge. Dumpster to dumpster to get rid of the body parts. 
It would be nearly impossible at this point, days later, to locate any of Ira's body parts, given the pickups by the trash companies and then the vast area that she likely covered. And it was a miracle even that the torso was found. Had that witness not seen this, she could have gotten away with it. Yeah. Nothing could have, you know, might have been discovered. Crazy. So within days of Valerie's arrest, police conducted a search on their lavish Scottsdale home, which is absolutely, it's huge. Gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yes. There were guns throughout the house. They did find Iris guns and a gun hidden in the backseat of the Jaguar, of Valerie's Jaguar, because they also did a search of her vehicle. But police could not be sure if any of those guns were the murder weapon. There was no bullet that was found in Ira's body. However, police did discover a bullet lodged in the wall of the home. So they're like, hmm, okay, we need to, we have a plethora of guns here and one bullet. So we need to test them all, right? So they sent it to the lab for ballistics testing and it was a match to the one in Valerie's trunk. So other than the bullet that was found in the wall matching the gun that was in Valerie's car, other than that being a match, there was no other evidence, DNA, blood, or anything like that to say that that was the bullet that killed Ira. Wow. Why wouldn't she get rid of the gun? I mean, she's carrying a torso around. Why wouldn't you get rid of the gun? I think she was going to because it was in the car. If she didn't intend to get rid of the gun, she would have left it in the house amongst the other ones, right? So I think she probably meant to. Sometimes you need to wear sneakers. <laughs> get rid of those fucking heels. Seriously. <laughs> so in the search of the house, police also found a receipt for a reciprocating saw about a month before the body was found. Ba- oh, Lord. Bad. <laughs> This could have been, you know, according to the medical examiner, a similar tool used for the dismemberment based on the bones that they found around the torso, right? So Uh the neck at the legs, the arms. Even though they found the receipt for the saw, they never found the saw. It was missing. Uh And it was bought less than a month prior. Police also gathered that with Valerie's petite size and Ira's nearly six foot, 200 pounds, he was like twice her size. Wow. The dismemberment was likely the only way Valerie would be able to get Ira's body out of the house. The torso alone was a struggle, and that was seen by the witness, to get it out of the car and into the dumpster. Investigators also theorized Valerie might have had help with one obvious person, Michelle. The investigation led police to believe the rumors of the rumors of Valerie and Michelle having an affair that they were more than just friends that was probably true and possibly could have been a reason for Valerie to kill her husband. Police felt that Michelle helped Valerie at a minimum dismembering her. So Valerie might have shot him, but Michelle probably helped with the dismemberment. Yeah, I would think so. Proving it, however, was a different story. There was no physical evidence for either Michelle or Valerie with their involvement in Ira's murder at all. Now, Valerie was seen dumping the body. That's right. Right. So that's evidence. That's a a testimony. But everything else was circumstantial. The witness account was probably the only solid thing. Ballistics did confirm that bullet came from that gun that was in Valerie's car. But again, there wasn't enough. But there was enough to charge her to indict her with first degree murder. But it might not be enough for conviction. Ah, So I, okay, so, so the gun that she had, the bullet, they found in the wall. Right. 
but they didn't find it on the body. So there was there right. was nothing. Okay, I get it now. Okay. Yeah, there was no like there was no DNA. There was no blood that was found on the bullet. There was no blood backlash or anything of Ira's that was found on the weapon. You know, back spatter or whatever. There was no other physical evidence that they were able to find. Just the circumstantial. I mean, they had the eyewitness account of her dumping a body. So that at at a minimum, abuse of a corpse. Yeah. Maybe. She went full, full Dexter on this guy. <laughs> yeah. So by February, so that was January, end of January, right? So in February, the investigation continued. Valerie did stay in prison until trial. After all, she was a French citizen charged with first-degree murder uh-huh. and gave prosecution every reason to believe that Valerie would inflate. Uh-huh. So this is where your extradition comes into play. All that background that you did. <laughs> so Michel, after being interviewed, he was actually cleared of any involvement at all. In Ira's murder, which blew my mind. But what he did do is bring the case to the French consulate's office, and they took an immediate interest. So Valerie was facing the death penalty by being charged with first-degree murder if she was convicted. France outlawed the death penalty, so if prosecutors pushed for Valerie to get the death sentence, it could have really been an international incident. Really? Between France and the U.S. Yeah, the potential for some sort of conflict i mean we talked about that before a consulate is like an extension of the embassy so like french embassy had a consulate's office there locally and france did not believe in the death penalty and if they pushed and she was convicted and got the death penalty it's quite possible it could have caused issues between the two nations so with this in mind prosecutors agreed to not seek the death penalty but go for first degree murder with life in prison if she was convicted Now, prosecutors felt they had a strong case of premeditation for the first-degree murder by showing the purchase of the saw Uh before Ira was actually killed. Uh They suspected Valerie killed Iowa. Iowa? Iowa. (laughs) She killed the state of Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) They suspected Valerie killed Ira because they were heading for divorce. Uh She did not want to give up her lavish lifestyle and was probably thinking, you know, insurance money, life insurance money, I'll get some more money. However, as the investigation continued and they looked into Ira's finances for that life insurance potential motivation to see what Valerie would be inheriting if she was acquitted she would get that life insurance and to their surprise they found that Ira filed for bankruptcy and his business dealings went south Ira was in financial distress she wouldn't have gotten like anything she had no idea Mm. as far as I know she did not have any clue that he filed for bankruptcy but she did know there was a lot of issues with his businesses they found out that Ira owed money to some quote-unquote bad people which made it possible that her story of finding Ira's body was true but just like you were saying so did somebody else kill Ira What the fuck happened to Ira, okay? (laughs) So, in their investigation, police also found and confirmed the domestic violence reports. Valerie had filed previously the protection order, and as well as the domestic disturbance calls that where they responded to the home after fights, there were, you know, loud noises and everything. Ira's family and friends adamantly denied any abuse of any kind. Louis, Ira's best friend, also dismissed the claim, saying that in all the years that he had known Ira, he was never a violent man. However, this claim of domestic abuse was out into the newspapers, and with Valerie so well-liked in the community, yeah. she was very well-known in the Scottsdale area, she had a lot of friends. And she was well-liked. Oh, boy. And she had a lot of support. Oh, boy. Saying that she was a domestic violence victim. 
However, Ira, similarly a longtime businessman in Arizona, had just as many supporters on his side. So, like, Scottsdale was, like, split. Was she a domestic violence victim or not? You know? Pictures of a bruised Valerie did make it into a local paper. However, based on the date of the photo that she said that when this picture was took in place, Ira's daughter said this photo was taken a day after she had a facelift. So it would have been bruising on her face. Oh, my. Ooh. So immediately she called the newspaper and said, this is a misleading image right. of, my, of what had happened. The newspaper investigated it and they retracted it. So it's a lot of shit. Yeah. It's a lot of shit going on. Drama. It's a lot, <laughs> a lot of, of drama. drama. So with Valerie's claims of abuse, with the previous order protection that she had filed and the history of domestic disturbance that were confirmed by police, it was enough to give prosecution pause to rethink first-degree murder. She may not be actually convicted, so part of first-degree murder is showing that premeditation. The purchase of the saw and... Yeah. Right? Even though the saw was missing. Mm -hmm. They were afraid that she wouldn't get convicted on first-degree murder and she would walk because you got one shot. Get one shot at this. There would be no justice for Iris' family. So by the summer of 2002, it was like two years later, well, two and a half years later, prosecution offered Valerie a plea deal. Second degree murder, which held a sentence between 10 and 16 years in prison. Ira's daughters were very reluctant. They were pissed off about this because they wanted life. But instead of risking the chance of Valerie walking, they understood the reasoning behind it. They did agree with the prosecution's offer. Now, Valerie was also hesitant to take second-degree murder because she did not want to face life in prison, but there was also a chance that she would walk if this domestic violence thing and showing she was a victim and it was self-defense or whatever, you know. But she did agree. August 20, 2002, she pled guilty to second-degree murder. It was a shocking agreement since she always claimed that she never murdered Ira, that she found his body. But with a plea deal, part of that plea deal was... What happened, she did confess that she fired, listen, she fired a gun in Ira's direction and it hit him. Love it. She never said, I shot Ira. She said, I had a gun, I fired it in his direction and it hit him. Not my fault. Listen. She was minimizing what she did. Right. But that's pretty brilliant the way she's spitting it right now. Yes. You know. Right. She took away the culpability and not fully admitted that she killed him. She's playing coy. Mm. Mm. Now, with a plea agreement, right, it's yes, you agree, you're, you still have a sentencing hearing. So there was a victim impact statement by one of Ira's daughters. So there is some video of this, like on news clips and stuff, where the daughter is talking, giving her, reading her statement. Valerie's behind her. She literally turns around looks Valerie in the face and says, quote, just tell us where the rest of his body is so we can bury him whole, end quote. Valerie didn't blink, did say a thing, nothing. Wow. Stare face. Wow. As a character witness, however, for Valerie, she had a lot of friends in the area, and her friends stated how nice, how kind she was, and how much she gave back to the community, and she must have just been pushed to her limit to be able to do what she had done. Maricopa County Superior Court Judge Frank Galati asked Valerie, quote, where is the rest of Mr. Pomerantz, end quote. Valerie never answered. She never said where the rest of his body was, and it reflected in his sentence. Okay. In response to the friend's statements, and when he was reading a sentence, he said, quote, she would tell them, basically where Ira's body was, if she was so damn kind, end quote. Like back at the friends or back at the character. Good. I love it. Ah! Good. He gave her the full 16 years. 
Valerie would later make a statement that she actually felt safer in jail than she did at home. Prison records show that Valerie worked in the prison as a barber, a beautician, a painter, and a tutor, probably for French. Uh Okay, this isn't the end of the story. (laughs) Within four years, Valerie would make a claim of a loss of $116,000 worth of personal items and keepsakes that were seized by the Mesa Police Department, and they were improperly turned over. So once the case is convicted, there's no time, like there's no more opportunities for appeal. You can do evidence disposition and give property back. You have options. You can destroy it. Like if it's paraphernalia, like you destroy it. Like if it's electronic, sometimes things are wiped and you give it back. So there's a lot of personal property that gets gets returned. So Valerie claimed that the Mesa Police Department returned her personal items back to Iris' daughter. And said that this was not only an economic loss, but an emotional harm to her. It it wasn't somebody that, one, Valerie probably said that was okay to return it to, but two, they weren't, like, they weren't related. Right, but it was probably, like, jewelry or something that was fancy. Yes. I'll talk about some of the property. I'll talk about it here in a second. The Mesa Police Department in the city did say, yes, we admit to this error. But Valerie claimed, quote, no amount of money will be substantial enough to replace my previous memories. It's worse than rape. And then she went on to say, this detective destroyed my past and my daughter's past, end quote. Because she, remember, she had a daughter that was like memories of a daughter and stuff from when she was living in France. So included in the property were checks from three bank accounts. And since Valerie had been in prison, the checks were cashed in Palm Springs, California, which is where one of Iris' daughters lived. Police in that city were investigating the bad checks, and the Mesa Police Department shows some of the other items include a black pearl ring with diamonds valued at $6,000, a snakeskin suit valued at $1,400, almost $3,000 in cash from her Scottsdale hair salon. But more importantly, Valerie had family photos and a video of her daughter's adoption. Valerie's defense attorneys and the attorney for Ira's daughter, Stacy, were working on arrangements to separate Valerie's property from Ira's property. I was unable to find what the resolution of this was. I'm like, I don't know if it was actually worked out or... And they could have been investigating the daughter, too, for cashing those checks. I mean, it's... Although, you killed my father. Fuck you. Yeah. Seriously. You know? (laughs) But wait, there's more. (laughs) Now, there are several countries who have extradition laws with the United States, right? So, back in 2002, when she did plead to the second degree, she wasn't going to get the life the death penalty so that little issue was a little was squashed but by 2006 there was an effort for valerie to be transferred back to france to serve the rest of her sentence at this point she had only served four years but with two years additional credit while she was in pretrial confinement so she had six years total so she had about 10 more years left to do the transfer was done under an international treaty that allowed the prisoners exchange between nations and when Ira's daughters heard about this, about her getting extradited, mm-hmm. they were pissed. Yeah. They were worried that once Valerie arrived in France, she would be released on parole. And they were immediately on the phone trying to stop this transaction. But by the time they had found out about it, Valerie's already en route. Like, she's like all the tra- paperwork's done. Everything's done. Mm. She's literally making her way back to France. Oh, my God. Okay. November 7, 2002, Valerie was released from the Arizona State Prison and placed into the custody of the U.S. Marshals. By November 17th, Valerie arrived at a federal transfer center in Oklahoma City, and that's where she would stay until her flight. 
The defense attorney who represented Valerie until up until her sentencing said it appeared that the transfer was done properly, and a lot of these transfers are common. And the transfer was in Arizona's best interest also because the state would no longer have to pay for her housing, like would no longer have to pay for her. Yeah. Get her out of here. She's not a American citizen. Mm. Be gone. Yeah. Now, Arizona Department of Corrections Executive Director Dora Shariro approved the transfer with the Department of Justice, according to the prison records. November 20th, so Valerie's in Oklahoma City just waiting on her flight. On November 20th, Shariro changed her mind after she talked to Ira's daughters and voicing the concerns about how the sentence would be served in France. It was like, cease and assist, go back to Arizona, and she did. Valerie Pape completed her 16-year prison sentence January 25th, 2016. She was deported to France March 7th, 2016. And to this day, Valerie Pape has never revealed what happened to the rest of Ira's body. Valerie's story became the subject of at least one book and was featured on Deadly Women, Uh TV show on Discovery Channel, and also an episode of Snapped. Gotta love Snapped. I love Snapped. And that is the rest of the story. <laughs> that was really this good. This is your episode of Crime and Cosmetics. Yes. Oh, my God. That was so good. You, I I never heard of this case before. Me either. Me either. I, I probably have seen that Snapped episode just because I like, you know, when Snapped was like super big like 10, 12 years ago, like that's all I watched. <laughs> But, and I told you it would all come together. I gave you Scottsdale. I gave you Torso. Mm-hmm. I gave you Extradition and a Murder and cosmetics like yeah, he gave it to and heels heel <laughs> but it all came together it all made sense <laughs> it does but you know what what if my, uh, michael michelle. michelle michelle what if he was in heels disguised as her driving her car to dump the body because i can't see if you're six two you're a big guy your torso is dead weight I mean, that's a big chunk of meat. I, mm-hmm. she, she, I'm telling you, she she's either seeing red or – but if you see red, are you going to put your heels on? But she would never leave the house without being perfectly done, even if it was to dump her husband's body. Listen, that's one thing I – That's one dedication. Thing that I have learned that when somebody is so, like, tight like that, like, so wound tight, you I would not – don't mess with them. They're a loose cannon. They're a loose cannon. Yeah. Sometimes you've got to go to Walmart in pajamas and your hair up in a bun. Sometimes you just got to do it. Slippers. Slippers. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think a lot of those Walmart photos that you see online are from the one here. <laughs> Backwards South Carolina. Then that's usually I, from Florida. Okay. <laughs> no, no, seriously. Yeah, so, okay, so my theory is Michelle definitely probably helped her with the dismemberment. I, I mean, it did show premeditation that uh-huh. by buying the saw, she took self-defense classes because she was afraid. She took lessons on how to shoot a gun because she was afraid. I mean, that's uh-huh. all bullshit and excuse. She knew that Iris was going to leave her. She knew that, like, she could see the end coming uh-huh. and she didn't want to lose everything. Yeah. And she took a, and she got a facelift and she was smart enough to take pictures afterwards. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like, do you think it's possible that he messed with the wrong people and he got, but it, so if he got chopped up in that house, that's why I said Dexter. Mm-hmm. That's why she went Dexter. Because there's <laughs> yeah. no way she is dismembering a body. Not that, I, you know, like, I don't have personal knowledge, but from what I hear mm-hmm. on the, the shows that we watch all the time. Yeah. That's a messy job, and there's a lot of blood, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking she if they didn't find trace evidence of blood, then she probably had, like, some type of plastic. How do you do that? She, well, she admitted to 
<laughs> firing a weapon in his direction and hitting him. Which is brilliant. Yeah. It's bad, but it's brilliant. <laughs> she admitted that it killed him, that the bullet killed mm-hmm. him. And then they couldn't, They she has never said how he was dismembered. In my personal opinion, so because her and Michelle was so close, childhood friends, did everything together, possibly uh, likely having an affair. She was protecting Michelle. And so she probably shut down when it came to the dismemberment because Michelle helped her. And that's why Michelle went to the consulate to get her, mm-hmm. oh, my God, yes. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And then he went, of course, after everything, he went back to France. Got the hell out of here. So. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't wait yeah. to Google this. I can't wait to follow up on that. <laughs> I got to see a picture of her. I have to see a Oh, and the whole reason I even came to the story, I meant to put this in the beginning, was from my, okay, true crime case stories. This is one of the many books that I got last Christmas. Um, of all murder and, and everything. <laughs> but it was in here, and, you know, I'm kind of flipping through whatever, and this it's what piqued my interest in the story. And then I did all the research. I watched the Snapped episode. Like, I watched all these news articles, all these news stories on it, read so much. And there were a couple things that were, like, saying that weren't, like, her backstory wasn't quite known. And I don't think that she ever really told anybody, like, part, her real backstory. Like, where's the daughter? I read something where she actually moved to New York, and that's where she met Ira, and then they moved to Arizona. Like, it, it, there's just a lot of, like, It's something very weird stuff in between. About her leaving her country, leaving her daughter behind. Yeah, yeah. Oh. But uh, that's our crime and cosmetics. Uh, Valerie Pape, the Arizona torso killer, which, by the way, is not the only Arizona torso murder. There's another Arizona torso murder. We're going to be doing that. But we'll have to cover that yes, another we'll time. we'll cover that another yeah. time. That was great. Thank you for doing that. Well, because we don't leave you hanging chatters, for more information on this case, please check out After That Crime Chat, only available on Patreon and before you... Wait, FYI, also Kat, your New York accent was coming out during this episode a couple of times. I felt it actually a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I felt it a little bit, yeah. I get I went from twang to every the New York every last name in this in this story was Italian descent. <laughs> yeah, it was. Well, I mean, other than Valerie and Michelle Sauvage. <laughs> That's probably how you say it. Michelle Sauvage. It sounds nice, but it's just not us. It's not no. <laughs> It's yeah. Michael Savage, yeah. and I'll leave it alone. <laughs> <laughs> How savage. Don't forget to follow us, Crime Chat with Nat Cat, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, to see what we got coming up, kind of see all this stuff going on, and check out our website, crimechatwithnatandcat.com. Remember, Crime Chat with Nat and Cat. when you become a chatter to our Patreon, you'll have access to bonus episodes, behind the scenes, bloopers, and free merch. Check out the merch that's in the works. Yes, be sure also to tune in to check out our next episode. Don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you on the next Crime Chat. Bye.